0: All right, we're going to return to the book of Job. We're in chapter 15. We're talking about redemptive suffering. If you have not been with us, the book of Job is just before the book of Psalms. So that's how you can always remember where Job is, okay? So we're we're talking about redemptive suffering as we will study Job chapter 15 tonight. This is a phrase that I've tried to put into your mind as we've been studying the book of Job to ask some questions about why the book of Job is even in our Bible. Why is it there? What purpose does it serve? And we're going to explore that as we explore the book of Job tonight, Father, as we are locating the text and just kind of settling in now to shift our attention to your living word. I pray that your living word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, would pierce to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Nobody's hidden from your sight, Lord. Everything is naked and open before the one to whom we must give an account. And thank you that the book of Job is in our Bibles to show us that there's something deeper we need to see about suffering. It is certainly not our favorite subject. It is something that most of us would admit that we, we don't uh, enjoy and we typically run from it. But it is a part of the Christian experience and it's really a part of the human experience all people in some way will suffer. Making sense of the suffering, uh, making sense of the problem of evil and the power of the gospel and how the two intersect is what we've been looking at as we've studied this majestic book of Job. I pray that you'll help me to get out of your way and that you'll speak to your people. Those who know you, those who may not know you, those who are shut-ins and they listen but they can't come here. They may be suffering right now from a malady that keeps them from traveling or even leaving their home or even their bed, but they've joined us on this journey in Job to see what you have to say to them, and I pray that you'd minister to every soul who will hear this study tonight, that you would, uh, you would speak, it would be, not be the voice of a man, but your voice through your word to your glory, in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. As we move through the book of Job, we've discovered that the purpose of this book is to show something deeper than a single man's suffering and restoration. If you never read through the book of Job, uh, let me steal the end for you for a second. I'll ruin the end of the movie. Uh, Job does get restored. He does make it. He doesn't die. His life flourishes again. God restores uh, twofold back to him And he enjoys a good long life, and he sees uh, many generations. And uh, in the midst of his suffering, he couldn't have imagined that that's what would happen to him. And I know for any of you who have ever suffered to one degree or another, sometimes in the middle of suffering, the questions that we ask are, Lord, what's going on? And then we ask, is this ever going to end? Sometimes it seems like our suffering uh, doesn't have a stopping point. We can't see our way through it. And that's part of what we go through, and it's part of our faith. Now, we went, we went through the Gospels together. Some of you went uh, through the Gospel of Mark with us, for example. And we were watching Jesus minister on the earth. We learned something about Jesus' miracles. And I tried to plant this idea in your brain as well, that Jesus' miracles were also parables. He did real healings of real people with real sicknesses and real maladies. But on a deeper level, Jesus' miracles were also parables. You may ask, how so, Pastor Michael? Here's how. His miracles were often conveying a deeper spiritual idea than just the healing on the surface. You guys realize that everybody Jesus healed on the earth ended up dying <laughs> of their last disease. Even Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead, even the little girl that he said, little girl, awake or arise, they lived and died. But Jesus' work in their life was not limited to just a physical healing. People that he touched, for example, with leprosy, became a picture that leprosy was a picture of sin and how it eats away at a life and how Jesus, when he touches a life, can restore it. Uh, Jesus' healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda becomes a picture of spiritual paralysis, a man who made poor decisions and he ended up crippled because of them. And Jesus says to the man, do you want to get well? Well, how could anybody say to a man in a condition that long, do you want to get well? What do you mean, do I want to get well? Of course I want to get well, but every time I try to get in the water, somebody gets in before me. Of course I want to get well. What kind of question is that? But then on a deeper level, we ask the question, some people, do they want to get well? Do they really want to overcome an addiction? Do they really want to overcome a lifestyle that's been hurting and wounding not only them, but those around them? Do you want to get well? That's what Jesus asked the man. And on and on it goes. In his miracles, they were pointing to spiritual blindness. He opens the eyes of the blind. Or uh, crippling spiritually, and he raises that person up. Or what sin can do to the creation. Jesus would do miracles like calming the storm, casting demons out of people to show his power. But he was doing something on a deeper level. I bring this up so that you and I can understand simply this. That Job's suffering and redemption and the questions asked in between are something deeper that you and I need to see. And it is this idea, would you all look up for a second? Of redemptive suffering. Now, I'm not saying that all suffering I can make sense of, or I can always put the you know, the lines together. Oh, that that's why this happened. Now I can see that result. I'm not telling you that I understand all the angles of it. I'm just telling you that the book of Job teaches it. And here's the main thought that you and I need to understand: Job is a picture of Jesus. Job is an innocent sufferer. Now, he's not perfectly innocent, but he's described as blameless in Job 1.1. God says, have you considered my servant Job? He is righteous, he is blameless, there's nobody like him. Jesus will show up thousands of years later and he will be completely innocent, completely blameless, never sinned, and he will suffer. And many people ask questions about Jesus' suffering. In fact, you'll remember people walked by the cross and they wagged their head at Jesus and they said, you who said you would destroy the temple in three days, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. As Jesus was suffering on the cross, the religious leaders, you who said you were the son of God, come down now from the cross and we'll believe in you. You want to talk about righteous, redemptive suffering? If there's ever a picture of redemptive suffering, it's in the cross. Jesus suffered once for all the just for the unjust to do what? To bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 1 Peter 3.18. See, this is the idea. Jesus is the greater Job. Now, does Job know that he foreshadows Jesus in the book of Job? No, he doesn't. Isn't that the problem? Isn't that what where I need faith to help me navigate my life when I don't understand, when I can't put all the dots together. From my perspective, from Joe's perspective, he knows nothing of the debate that's happened in the heavenlies. He doesn't know that Satan has told God he will curse you to your face if you pull the hedge from him. The only reason he worships you is because of what you've done for him. You've blessed his life but pull the rug out from under his feet and watch what he does. Job does not know that. You know that because you've read chapter one and chapter two. Job does not know that. And that's where faith comes in. And that's what's so hard about faith because we walk by faith and not by sight. See, I want to see all the angles of everything. I would like to be able to look at it from five different angles and then assess how I would, you know, navigate that or, you know, settle on my response to whatever I'm facing. See, the Messiah has come to deal with our ultimate issues, and he knows that sometimes the best way to deal with them is to put us in situations where the only way that we can look is up. And some of you may be asking tonight, could my suffering be redemptive, because I can read the book of Job and say, fine, that that applied to a man thousands of years ago, but does it still apply today? Isn't that the big question we're all asking? Because if my suffering is meaningless, see, that's, that's what most people struggle with in the world. You know, Barna did one of his famous research polls, and he asked Americans, if you could ask God one question, if you had an audience with God, and you could ask Him one question, what would you ask? And the bulk of the people, the major percentage of respondents said, I would ask God why there's so much evil and suffering in the world. You see, this is the book of Job. And I want to apply it back to you and me and ask the question, is it possible that my suffering could be redemptive? And I think it is. I'm going to show you a passage in Philippians. Uh, Hold a place in the book of Job. We'll return because I know we haven't even done a verse yet of chapter 15. But... You guys are used to that. Philippians chapter 1. Uh, Paul is in uh, some form of Roman imprisonment at this point in his life. He's writing to the church at Philippi, a precious letter that many of us have treasured over the years. And he writes these words. This is Philippians 1, 12 through 14. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances, Philippians 1, 12, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment, Philippians 1.13, in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren or the church, Philippians 1.14, trusting in the Lord because of what? Because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. I want you to flip down all the way to verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you, and that too from God, 129 Philippians. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but what's your Bible say? But also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. What do you mean, Paul? Paul would say, here's what I mean. I ended up in Roman imprisonment. I got a chance to share with the guards But as I was in that prison, in my own suffering, other people in the church stepped up, became more bold to share the word of God, and there was a positive benefit. Now, none of us, if we were in Paul sandals and we got interviewed by a Christian magazine, would say, yeah, I'm really enjoying the prison environment. It really seems to suit me. (laughs) I don't think we'd say that. I think we'd say on a human level, hey, I want to get out of here as soon as possible. But do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying on a, on a level beneath the suffering, God is using it. He's exploiting it for his good purposes, not only in my life, but in the lives of others that are watching. See, the religious friends of Job's Uh, The so-called comforters cannot fathom. They are religious people, but they cannot conceive of this concept of redemptive suffering. They cannot fathom that their friend's suffering is revealing something else that God is wanting to convey to them and a wider audience. So that every time they respond to Job's situation or his words or his struggle, they miss the point again and again and again. And I wonder how many times I've missed the point. I wonder how many times God's taken me through a season that I consider difficult, I didn't like, but God's saying to me, but Michael, I'm doing something. I'm teaching you to rely upon me more. I'm teaching you levels of faith. I'm teaching you how to lean into me in the good times and the bad. And you may not realize this, but I'm also teaching people who are watching you as you go through your own struggle. You see, God's always working on multiple levels that I cannot see. And once again, that's where my faith comes in. You see, the point is this, that Job's suffering was revealing a deeper spiritual battle in the heavenlies. There's an enemy bent on destroying God's people. And that suffering will have a major place in the final resolution of that battle. Because I submitted to you that Jesus is the greater Job, the ultimate dilemma of mankind will be settled, resolved, by the suffering of the most innocent one that's ever lived. Everybody with me so far? This is what the book of Job is trying to say to us. That somewhere beneath the veil, behind the the veil, beneath what I normally look at, God works. And no, I can't make sense of all of it. And yes, I have questions like you do. 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Gentiles. Literally, it's a scandal. It's scandalous. It's foolishness to them. But for us who are being saved, Christ is the power of God. Every time I'm up here, I have to remember that some people will deem my preaching to be foolishness, but that's not what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about getting the message of Christ to people who can be conformed or namely transformed by the power of God. For the Jews, the cross was a scandal. Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. How could the Messiah die in this way? No way. Jesus, you know, he's doing his ministry on the earth and they say to him, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus says... I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. You answer one question from me, for me. Was John's baptism from the Lord or from man? They did their little huddle up, huddle up, everybody, huddle, huddle, huddle. If we say, if we say it was from God, then they would say, Why aren't we following? Why didn't we follow John? If we say it's from man, then we're in trouble too. So what should we do? We don't know. They said, We can't say it's from man because all the people respected and lauded John. So they were in quite a quandary. Ready, break, we don't know. Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. (laughs) Don't you love Jesus? Just putting people in their place. I'll answer your question, you answer one question from me. You see, for many people and this may be true in your life, you present the gospel to your friends and they say, what does a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago have to do with my life today? What does that mean? Why should I care? Oh, here's why. The one dying on the cross is God in human flesh. And the reason he's dying on the cross is because we in big trouble You see, the wages of our sin is death. And so he dies the death on the cross that we deserve to die, takes the wrath of God for us. Do you think that concerns every person? Yes. But until they understand the gospel, they're not going to see their need. All right, if you're still in the New Testament, turn over to Matthew 16. Not even the disciples could conceive of redemptive suffering. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, Matthew 16, 21, from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside, 16, Matthew. He began to rebuke him and said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you, never. But he turned to Peter. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, who? Satan. You are a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. This is important for us to think about if we find ourselves in a season of suffering. Peter doesn't want Jesus to suffer. Peter says, uh, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, at this moment, you've become a spokesperson for Satan, just like Job's wife did. In what sense? God's purposes are going to be achieved through my suffering. Peter couldn't fathom it. There's no way that's going to happen to you, Lord. And then Jesus goes on. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, what should he do? He should deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Later he'll say, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Luke 9, 45 says, but they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they not, might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Even the disciples did not understand redemptive suffering. Remember the man who was born blind, John 9. Turn back to the book of Job now. And they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither him nor his parents sinned, but this has happened that the works of God might be made manifest in him. The disciples didn't get it. The religious leaders didn't get it. And the modern religious mind doesn't get it. The modern religious mind believes that the principle of the universe is this. You do good, and good comes back to you. Isn't it true? It's called the law of karma, dude. Now, that's not a Christian principle. That's an Eastern principle. And the law of karma basically says you do good things and that those good things fly up into the universe somewhere and somebody, whoever that may be, pays it back to you. That's not Christianity. Christianity does not teach the law of karma. It teaches the law of sowing and reaping, no doubt. But the Bible says that sometimes you're going to suffer and it might be because you're righteous. Sometimes you're going to be persecuted and it's for doing the right thing. See, that's how it works. Jesus was the most upright, innocent person who ever lived. And what did they do? They nailed him to a cross. Is that fair? And do you know who did it to him? Do you know the ones that instigated it the most, his crucifixion? The religious leadership of Israel. I'm not saying all Jews did it. No, 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 no. I'm saying the religious leaders of the day who were afraid of him because he was preaching the truth and preaching with authority. And religious people today, when you say, hey, grace is free, all you have to do is receive what Jesus did for you on the cross, Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. This concept of grace throws the religious mind for a loop, a loop-de-loop, right? No, good people end up in the good place and bad people end up in the bad place. You can't tell me that someone repents on their deathbed and God just applies the grace of the cross to them. Yes, I can tell you that. I can tell you about a thief on the cross in his dying moments who Jesus said today You will be with me in paradise. And he didn't even pray the sinner's prayer. You know what he said? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Most assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's not fair. He was a robber. He was guilty. Yep. Guess what? So were you. I've never stolen anything. How about a pencil or a pen or a paperclip? Yeah, but, but that's only about 50 cents. Oh, value is what determines whether or not you stole something. Yeah, it's got to be something big, like $50 or more. Or it's, 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 a, it's a white steal. So, like a white lie. What is that exactly? <laughs> what does that mean? That's called justification 101. Well, she asked me how I looked in the dress or how she looked in the dress what was I to say I don't know get creative (laughs) I remember years ago we were using volunteers in the church office and they were well-meaning volunteers from the church and I would hear them answer the phone this many years ago nobody in this room (laughs) <laughs> and I'd hear them answer the phone and I, and I would say to them, hey, I'm gonna, be in, I'm gonna be studying for the Bible study tonight so I'm not taking phone calls unless it's an emergency. And they, I heard them answer the phone, give the church name. Oh, no, Pastor Michael's not here right now. <laughs> and they were lying to the people calling the church office because I had told them I was unavailable. So I had to walk out graciously to our volunteer secretary and say, um, here's what you can do. When they call, just say, I'm unavailable. You don't have to lie to them. Oh, he's not here. He went, yeah, he went to get another burrito. (laughs) No. But he got three of them already today. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I've done all that as introduction. Verse 1, Job 15. (laughs) Then Eliphaz the Temanite responded, We met Eliphaz in chapters 4 and 5. He seems to be the oldest. He is the first to speak in all three cycles of speeches. He's from Teman. He's called the Temanite, an area known for wisdom. You can uh, go back and listen to those messages in chapters 4 and 5 if you want to know. Now, he certainly has some good things to say when he first speaks to Job. And In fact, fact, we would say he's very gracious with Job in his opening speech in chapters 4 and 5. But as this chapter unfolds, he's losing patience with Job, like all the other so-called comforters. He's tired of hearing Job become, uh, asking questions of God, claiming that he's still innocent, not, not perfectly innocent, but that he's been blameless before God. And he, he's calling upon Job to repent. But as I've mentioned before, Job doesn't need to repent. He's been honoring God, and he's not going to make something up to satisfy his friends. <laughs> See, anybody who comes to you and tells you that suffering is always the result of sin is a liar. Now, they may not know they're lying, they may have been taught that in their circle, but it is a flat out lie. Please hear me. All suffering is not the result of sin. Some suffering is the result of sin, but not all of it. And these religious men who have traveled for miles to come and share their wisdom and comfort with Job just cannot fathom that Job might be telling the truth. That something on a deeper level is going on. And so he becomes more hostile with Job like the others. And he says, should a wise man, 15-2 of Job, Answer with windy knowledge and fill himself, ESV, fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue with useless talk or with words which are not profitable? See, first, Eliphaz questions Job's wisdom. If you're a wise man, you wouldn't be talking this way as Job's been talking. In fact, it would appear that you filled your belly with a whole lot of east wind. <laughs> <laughs> I will not get descriptive here, but here the idea is of a shirocho. It's a hot wind in the desert that produces no rain. It does nothing but cause dryness, parchness, and sometimes misery. Should he argue with useless talk, verse 3, or with words which are not profitable? What is Eliphaz saying to Job? You're a windbag. You're full of a lot of hot air. You are not wise and I cannot categorize you as wise. He's becoming impatient with what he perceives as Job's windy (laughs) knowledge coming out of his life for. Indeed, you do away with reverence. Let me pause here for a second. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and they are pontificating about uh concepts and you start to get the idea that they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about and you're like where did you get this and they said well I had one of those fortune cookies I pulled it out you know just to see you ever you ever do that just to see and uh I do that I eat Chinese food and I always open it up and one time I was with Shane and it said You are an extremely creative individual. And I said, well, that's a bunch of hogwash. (laughs) Because I'm not. I'm a visionary, but I draw stick figures when I draw. Anyway. But you even undermine. So look at uh, verse 4. You do away with reverence. You hinder meditation before God. Eliphaz going after Job. Verse 4, NIV. You even undermine piety. Piety. ESV, you do away with the fear of God and hinder devotion. Devotion is a Hebrew word which means musing, study, prayer, meditation, consideration. It can also mean complaint. You do away with meditation before God and the fear of God. You're undermining the system, Job. Do you hear yourself talking, questioning God, saying you're innocent? You have to have something to repent over. Job, you're, we don't want people to be listening to you anymore. Your newfangled ideas might catch on. You're messing with the system. You see, think about it this way. This is what one writer says. He says, Job, and your newfangled ideas, if they catch on, all the usual incentives to be godly and pious will be gone. Listen, if blessing does not follow virtue... Why be virtuous, close quote? Do you know the books that are flying off the shelf today in Christian communities? It's books that are pretty much self-help. How you can get everything you can get from God. Right? They fly off the shelf. Even the book called The Secret flew off the shelves. How many of you remember the book called The Secret? Oprah was putting it before the... And The Secret was simply this. You speak to the universe, and you say, universe, I would really like to have a slim figure, but I'm about to eat this third chocolate cupcake, but I'm going to speak up to the universe and say, cupcake, you are not going to make me fat, and I speak it into the universe. Now, (laughs) I got news for you. You can speak to the universe, whoever that is, all you want. You're going to get fat if you eat all those chocolate cupcakes. Or you pull out your wallet and you say, Oh, wallet, you are just fat and full of money. And I just want you to expand right now in the name. You got to say it that way. But here's the truth. If you didn't go to work that week, it ain't happening. Think with me. If your motivation to be godly is only for blessings, it's not for the master's honor, but what you can get that's on his table. Oh, this is the way it works. You live a godly, pious life so you can pull the handle and get the candy bar when you want it. Let me ask you, is your motivation the honor of the master or what you can get from him? You see, that is selling big in Christian circles. What you can get from the master's table. The moment the master pulls the blessings off the table, will you still be virtuous and godly? What if you were Joseph and you said to Potiphar's wife, I will not sleep with you because it's wrong and I won't dishonor God or dishonor my master. And then you get falsely accused and end up in prison. You gonna stop being godly now? Well, that doesn't work. Is your walk about pragmatism? What I mean by that is your walk all about what works? Or is it the honor of the God who made you despite what happens? Now, I'm not telling you this is easy. (laughs) Please hear me. But I'm telling you that this is what the book of Job is teaching us. And Satan said to God, the moment you take his blessings away and remove that hedge, he will curse you to your face. The only reason he follows you is because you bless his life. Pull it away and see what he does. What did Job do? He shaved his head, got down on the ground, and he worshiped the Lord after his huge losses. Why? Naked I came into the world, naked I'm going to leave it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How does somebody do that? They do that because they were not serving God in the first place for what they could get out of him. This is what the book of Job is saying. In Romans 8, 17 and 18, it says, If we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us or to us. Romans 8, 17 and 18. Paul writes to Timothy and says, suffer hardship, 2 Timothy 2-3, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, suffer hardship with me, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Imagine if you followed the Apostle Paul around the Roman world. From shipwreck to imprisonment to whippings, to being beat within an inch of his life, to being left for dead in Lystra. Let's say that you were a, a, a reporter that traveled around the world and you were doing a story on the Apostle Paul. And someone asked you, hey, by the way, make part of your report should be this. Do you think the Lord's blessing Paul? <laughs> Can you imagine? You go up with your microphone, he's in prison. Everybody's bailed on him except Luke. <laughs> hey, Paul, are you blessed? You blessed? Well, hold on, let me show you the scars I got in this city and the scars I got in that city and how people fasted until, until I was dead. And do you, do you understand what I'm saying? But Paul was the most blessed man who probably walked the face of the earth. Why? How many people did the guy bring to Christ? Untold Numbers. We're still reading his letters today, inspired by God. Was his life easy? No. Do you think people looked at Paul and said, gee, I really want to be like the Apostle Paul. Preach like him. Be like him. Do you know the description of the Apostle Paul when he would come into town? He wasn't coming in in designer suits. And he wasn't winning popularity contests in most of the cities that he preached in. But did he accomplish God's will? Oh, yeah. You see, I know this doesn't sell. I understand that. But here's what the Bible is saying. And Eliphaz says, your guilt teaches your mouth, verse five, and you choose the language of the crafty. You're being crafty. You're guilty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. New Living Translation says, your sins are telling your mouth what to say. Your words are based on clever deception. You're cunning and crafty. Do you know the word for crafty There is the same word used of the serpent in Genesis 3.1 that he was more crafty than all the beasts that the Lord God had made. How could Eliphaz say that to Job? I thought he was supposed to come and comfort the guy. Have you ever noticed people who are supposed to be your comforters can quickly become your critics? It can happen very rapidly. I thought your intent was to come here and bring me comfort. And it can turn into criticism. You see, he's saying, Job, you're being deceptive. You were, he says, were you the first man to be born? Look at verse 7. Were you brought forth before the hills? As though before creation. Do you hear the secret counsel of God and live it wisdom to yourself? Nine, What do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that we do not? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father, you whippersnapper. All right, it's time to pull rank with you, young man. You see these gray hairs? I've earned every one of them. (laughs) Each one of them represents a root of wisdom. (laughs) A root? Uh, Never mind, anyway. I've got shoes older than you, boy. (laughs) I remember one time I was at a friend's house. We were in high school, and this guy was selling door-to-door, and one of my buddy's friends was quite a comedian. Uh, One of my buddy's friend's father was quite a comedian, and the guy said, hey, if you buy this product today, I'll give you a fly swatter. (laughs) And The dad looked at the fly swatter and goes, man, I got flies bigger than that fly swatter. That's kind of what Eliphaz is doing here. He seems to be the oldest. He's pulling rank. And sometimes, of course, it's true that older people have wisdom, but sometimes we think that just because we've been around a while, we know everything and we don't. The listening has to go both ways. So the rabbis questioned Jesus and they said, we've got tradition here. We've got the tradition of the rabbis, the tradition of the fathers. Where'd you come from? What school did you go to? And by what authority do you do these things? You see, every time I mention Jesus, Jesus is the greater Job. Are you with me? The people that should have been Jesus' comforters became his critics. When he needed the apostles, they were busy arguing about which one of them was the greatest. They had tunnel vision he says are the consolations 11 will move quickly or the comforts of God too small for you as though the words we spoke to you must be from God Job even the words spoken gently with you I started off gently but that's going to change buckle your seatbelt now why does your heart carry you away why do you why do your eyes flash as though Job was winking at their wisdom that you should turn your spirit against God And allow such words to go out of your mouth. Eliphaz believes, obviously believes, he's been speaking for God and Job can't possibly. Where's your reason? Where's your vision, Job? Why don't you understand? Has Job turned away from God? Remember I've told you in little snippets in the book that Job continues to be a worshiper of God even in his doubts and questions. Turn all the way to 42 of uh, uh, the book of Job. Job 42. All right, we're gonna show you a little bit of the end of the story so you can see who was speaking for God and who wasn't. Look at Job 42. Look at verse seven. Job 42, seven. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to to Eliphaz the Temanite. 42, seven. That's the guy in chapter 15. My wrath is kindled against you, And against your two friends. And Eliphaz said, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Because you have, what? Not spoken of me what is right, as who? My servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him so that I might not do with you according to your... Folly, the opposite of wisdom. Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as who? My servant Job has. Do you know that God doesn't fully restore Job until after he prays for his critics? Hmm. Back to Job 15. God doesn't restore Job until he prays for his poor comforters. Could it be that there's a block in our lives... Spiritually speaking, because we're so busy criticizing and staying, instead of praying for people that we're criticizing. Hmm. Is God waiting until our heart changes before he pours out a blessing? Job 15, 14 says, What is man that he should be pure? Eliphaz continues to address Job. Or who is born of a woman that he should be Righteous. Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, he's speaking about God, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks in iniquity like water. What do you think Eliphaz is saying? He's saying, Job, you are detestable and corrupt. You drink in sin like people knock back a glass of water on a hot day. Ouch. All God's people said, ouch. You see, Eliphaz cannot conclude anything but this about Job because there's no way that Job's suffering can be anything but unrepentant sin. Everybody understand? And so because that's true and because Eliphaz could only see things through this worldview, his religious worldview, he cannot let Job off the hook and consider any other idea. And so he has to say, Job, you're a terrible sinner. Now he'll paint a picture of a, Un, an anonymous wicked man, but but he's certainly talking about Job. He says, I will tell you, listen to me, 17. What I have seen, I will also declare. What wise men have told and have not concealed from their fathers. This is tradition. Tradition. To whom alone the land was given, no alien passed among them. The wicked man, here's this anonymous wicked man, rise in pain all his days. Kind of like you, Job. And Numbered are the years stored up for the ruthless. Sounds of terror are in his ears. I wonder how many times Job replayed the bad news from the, the people who came and told him about the next calamity. While at peace, the destroyer comes upon him. Job will say in chapter 16, verse 12, take a peek. He says, I was at ease, all was well with me, Sixteen twelve. but he, God, shattered me. He has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target. In 1521, uh, Eliphaz says to Job, while at peace, the destroyer comes in suddenly, the anonymous man is you. He doesn't say it, but that's what he means. 22 of chapter 15, he does not believe he will return from darkness. This wicked man, he is destined for the sword. That's how Job feels right now, that he's heading for the grave, no turning back. He wanders about scavenging for food, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. Imagine how many terrible dreams Job had as he talks about nightmares in chapter 7, verse 14. Sounds that he replayed of the bad news and maybe the falling of the roof. He imagined hearing it upon his children. They overpower him like a king ready for the attack. If you've ever been through a wave of uh, bad seasons uh, when things stack one upon another, you start to expect something bad to happen around the corner. Everybody, anybody ever been there before? It's like, okay, when's the next bad thing going to happen? Don't they happen in threes or in my case in 70s? <laughs> it's just around the corner. It's like a king ready for attack. It's coming. And you know what that does to our emotional stability? When we start thinking about just the next thing that goes wrong and our self-talk And even our prayers become skewed. we become very unhealthy people. We've all probably been there before where we realize, man, my self-talk is every other word I say to myself, I'm calling myself an idiot. Why did you do that? What were you thinking? This probably happened because you did this 75 years ago. That's why. The chickens are coming home to roost, right? (laughs) And we do this to ourselves. And Job was there. But Eliphaz had to turn the knife in. You feel like a king's ready to attack you because he's stretched out his hand against God. Here's why this happens to this anonymous wicked man. He's, he's against God. He conducts himself arrogantly against the Almighty. He rushes headlong at him with a massive shield. He doesn't have a shield of faith. He has a shield of quarreling with his maker. That's why this happens to this quote-unquote anonymous man. He has covered his face with his fat, 27, <laughs> another ouch, and made his thighs heavy with flesh. I was, <laughs> I was listening to Brian, I think it was Brian Regan. He's a very funny, clean comedian. He says, the doctor's the only one who can spend five minutes with you and get away with telling you that you need to lose 40 pounds. You know, oh, and by the way, one more thing. You need to lose weight. <laughs> He's like, Only your doctor can say that to you. Well, Eliphaz says that to Job. He says this anonymous wicked man, it's obvious by the way he looks, what he's been doing. One too many donuts on Sunday morning. (laughs) Thighs are showing how he's been living. Physical condition describes a spiritual life. He's undisciplined. Remember, this is Eliphaz talking to Job, implying you're in this condition, Job, because you did it to yourself. You've done something wrong. Just admit it. He's lived in desolate cities and houses no one would inhabit, which are destined to become ruins. Think about Job. He lost everything. The house fell on and his children. He will not become rich. Job lost his estate and his wealth, nor will his wealth endure. His grain will not bend down to the ground. He will not escape from darkness. The flame, remember lightning came down in Job 1.16 and destroyed Job's property. The flame will wither his shoots and by the breath of his mouth, he will go away. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself for emptiness will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time. His palm branch will not be green. He will drop off. His unripe grape like the vine, before anything ever ripens in his life, it will fall down. It will cast off his flower like the olive tree. He won't become what he should have been. That's you, Job. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of the corrupt. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity, and their mind prepares deception. That's why in the next chapter, you're going to hear Job say, you miserable comforters you sorry comforters. Instead of throwing a blanket of grace on my life, Job will say in the next chapter, if if it were reversed, I would have come to you and attempted to bring comfort to your life. You know what you've done to me? You've brought more misery on me. You've kicked me while I was down. Next week, we'll look at a message called True Comfort and how we can be better comforters. Well, I want to tell, tell you that at the end of the story, and I'll just point this out because I've already said it. <clears throat> uh, Job was so prosperous before the calamity, now it's as if, as if the unripe grapes have fallen off the vine before they ripened. Barrenness is the destiny of the wicked. But we know Job's story, and as hard and difficult as it is, it will not end the way that Eliphaz says. Job will be doubly fruitful And interestingly enough, God will restore him after he prays for his poor comforters, Job 42.10. Job will be restored at the end of his life. Uh, He will be an old man full of days, Job 42.16. And I want you to imagine for a second that you had a chance to talk to Job after everything was restored back to him. Imagine the wisdom of Job after he went through this. Now, I'm not saying I understand why God put him through this. I do think it's for our benefit. But can you imagine seeking out the wisdom of Job after this season of his life and asking him about spiritual truth and mysteries and faith? Could there be a better counselor than Job? Could there be a man that understands faith better than Job? I think not. You say, why do you bring it up? because perhaps God's doing something similar in your life and mine. Perhaps God has allowed you to go through a season so that you might be even more effective as a comforter and counselor to others. I'm not trying to explain the why because I don't understand the why of everything. I'm just trying to tell you about the hope that we have. The good news is that the greater Job did come. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you arrived on the planet knowing that you would suffer for us. You made a decision somewhere in eternity. You decided to suffer for us, to be an innocent sufferer, uh, to take the wrath of God in our place, to love those who were in rebellion to you, those who would criticize you, argue about which of them would be the greatest, reject you, though you were the Messiah and you came on a rescue mission. You are the greater Job, and Job is a foreshadowing of Jesus who would come to rescue his people through redemptive suffering. Father, I confess it is a hard concept, but the book of Job is here to teach us that there are layers of our walk. There are things that you are doing in the heavenlies that we don't always understand. I want to pray for the dear saint tonight who's got big question marks in their soul and they're hanging on for dear life, trying to hang on to their faith even when they don't understand. I pray that you would walk them through this hard season. Restore back to them the years that the locust has eaten. Bring everything back doubly to them, Lord. I know that didn't remove all of Job's hurt and pain but I know it showed him in the end that you are a God who does restore and that he would find his answers in the face of his God. If you keep your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this would be a great time to reach out to him, maybe even in a moment of suffering to say, Lord, would you save me? Teach me to follow you in the good times and bad times. If you need to rededicate your life to Christ and you've been Maybe a few things have hit your life and caused you to take a little detour and you want to get back to where you need to be. He's available to you right now. And if you're a a saint going through suffering and you've you've stayed steadfast and immovable, but you're hurting, I pray that the Holy Spirit would minister comfort to you tonight. He is the comforter. And I pray that he would minister to your Life And if you are, if things are going great for you and you're just enjoying the ride, praise God. I pray that when a season of suffering does come, this will help prepare you in advance, not to be blindsided and not to think that God doesn't love you anymore because things are not the way that they used to be. Lord, in a room like this, you know every heart and I pray that you would be working and weaving out your master plan In every one of our hearts, as we humble ourselves before you, we're going to come to the table. Remember our great Messiah, the greater Job, the innocent uh, sufferer who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As we come to the table, I pray that you would remind us of your great love for us. Pray that you would uh, refresh as we come to your table and spend a few minutes meditating on your goodness and your love. And our faith in you. And I pray you bless each one that comes. In Jesus name. Amen.